your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them up to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, as we continue our studies in the life of Christ, and currently uh, looking at his Sermon on the Mount, and right now looking at the Beatitudes. And this morning we're going to look at uh, verse 8 and 9, a couple, a couple more of the Beatitudes. Let's look at verse 8 now. And Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, there are those that say that this beatitude is the greatest of all the beatitudes, the highest of all the beatitudes. And those who have this trait, this characteristic, this attribute, whichever you want to call it, that is being pure in heart shows the true religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, two words in this beatitude hold the key to what it means. The two words are the words translated pure and heart. Pure comes from the Greek word katharoi. The basic meaning of the word translated pure in this attitude is clean, pure, clear. In a natural sense, unsoiled, unalloyed, according to Zodiati's um, definition of New Testament words. So, an excellent and detailed description of the meaning of the word katharoi, which means pure, is given by Dr. George Lawler. He says the word katharoi itself is the death knell or the death blow for the immorality of today's so-called numerality. And this is mentioned here in, in uh, uh, are mentioned in John G. But, John G. Butler's uh, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says it means to cleanse from filth and impurity in the moral sense. It means free from the defilement of sin, therefore to purify. And it's similar to the Latin word castus, incestus, and the English word chaste. All right. The word has reference in medical terminology to a cathartic, a purgative, for the purpose of cleansing out, fleshing out, making pure. The word heart comes from the Greek word cardia. This Greek word for heart used in the Beatitude is used often today, especially having to do with medical terms about the heart. Now, when people get a physical, and many of you may have had an EKG, uh, EKG stands for electric cardiogram, which is a test to show how well the heart is working. In the English use of this Greek word for heart, we, use, we usually change the K, cardias, K-A-R-D-I-A in the Greek, uh, to the C uh, in English, C-A-R-D-I-A, so that it's cardia with a C instead of cardia with a K. So the cardiograph is an instrument that measures the movement of the heart. A cardiogram it speaks of the graph that is used by the uh, uh, the graph that is used by the cardiograph of the heart's movements, and when we speak of cardiovascular disease, we're talking about heart disease. So it's very clear that the word that is being used here in Scripture is speaking about the heart. But the heart that Jesus is talking about is not the physical heart. All right, it's not the heart of the flesh. It's not dealing with the physical heart. He's speaking about the spiritual heart, the spiritual condition of our heart, which is the center of man's being and personality. 
It's the fountain of which everything else comes. The seat of the heart, well, the heart was believed to be the seat of the emotions. All right, the heart speaks of the inner self that thinks, it feels, and it decides. In the Bible, the word heart has a much broader meaning than it does to most modern minds today. The heart is that, is that which is central to man. Nearly all the references to the heart in the Bible refer to some aspect of human personality. For example, in the Bible, the heart was the seat of all the emotions that were experienced by the heart, like love and hate, joy and sorrow, peace and bitterness, courage and fear. The thinking process of man, uh, are, uh, processes of man are said to be carried out by the heart. This intellectual activity relates to what, would we, what we would call mind in English. So the heart may think, it may understand, it may imagine, uh, it may remember, it may be wise, and it may speak to itself. Decision-making is also carried out by the heart. Purpose, intention, and will, they're all activities of the heart. And lastly... The heart often means someone's true character or personality. Purity or evil, sincerity or or hardness, and maturity or rebelliousness. All of these describe the heart, again, or true character of individuals. Now, God knows the heart of every person. He He knows what's in every person's heart. He looks into the heart. He sees the heart. And since a person speaks and acts from his heart, we need to guard our hearts as well. The most important duty that we have, that man has, is to love God with all of his heart, his whole heart. Not to have a divided heart for God and something else. With the heart, man believes in Christ. And so he experiences both love from God and the presence of Christ in his heart. It speaks of the inward man not the outward man. It speaks of the spiritual condition of man. It focuses on the soul and not the body. The heart is the main emphasis of God's message to mankind. He wants to touch the heart. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is concerned about the heart. And all its emphasis is on the heart. And and if you remember uh, Jesus' greatest charge... His greatest indictment against the Pharisees and religious leaders of of his day was always that they were interested in the outside. They ignored what was going going on inside the spiritual heart. Remember, they said, if you so much as commit adultery with with a woman, you know, you're in sin. But Jesus took that even further. If you so much as look at a woman upon a woman with adultery in your heart, you have committed sin. Now, to the scribes, or to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, as long as you didn't do it outwardly, <clears throat> physically, apparently you were okay. But Jesus said, no, no, no. You know, you know, the intent of the heart is what is important as well. Because you see, what you do outwardly many times begins with what's going on in the heart. You know, we, we have a, a, an evil desire in the heart. And if it's not put away right away, then we entertain that thought and it, it works itself out in the flesh. So again, the main emphasis is Jesus's message is it has to do with the heart. Because again, from, from our heart comes those things that, you know, whether, whether good or bad. 
So again, uh, the heart is the main emphasis of God's message to mankind. The gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned about the heart. Look at, again, uh, the, the, the outside is ignored. The inside was, was, again, the concern of the spiritual heart. Look at them externally. All right. That is the, 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 the Pharisees or the scribes, the leaders. You look at them externally. They were fine. They were without spot. But inwardly, they were full of dead men's bones. In another sermon, Jesus described these wicked religious leaders as graves. He says they're graves whose, whose tombstones were whitewashed. But he said inside, inside those graves, there was corruption. The corruption of a dead body, decay. You know, just all things corrupt. They looked nice on the outside, Jesus said. But their insides, they were totally corrupt to the very core. Again, the emphasis on the heart tells us that we have to first get the heart right if we expect to truly get anything else right. We read in Proverbs 4.23, Solomon said, Keep your heart with all diligence. Why? He says, because out of it, that is the heart, spring the issues of life. The word keep means guard. It's like a prison guard who, 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 who would guard a prisoner to not let him escape. He said, guard your heart, protect it with all diligence, because out of your heart will flow the issues of life. A bad heart, bad life. A good heart, a good life. He said, guard your heart above all else, more than anything else, because your heart determines your path in life. A pure heart will ensure a pure life. The way you guard your heart, and then Solomon after that in, in verses 24 through 27, told us how to guard our hearts in this instance. He said, look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. Keep your eyes on Christ. Don't look to the left or to the right. He said, mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on that safe path. Know where you're going. Have that direction given to you by the Lord. Don't get sidetracked, he said. Keep your feet from following evil. So again, the pure heart will keep you on the right track. It will keep your eyes on the right thing. And it will keep you doing what you're supposed to do. Now, if you want your outward life to be truly holy, then the inward life has to be true, truly holy. Again, this emphasis on the heart proves the intellect idea false because it says, again, education is the answer. So the emphasis on the heart proves that it's not about the intellect. It's not about knowledge. <clears throat> it proves that idea, <clears throat> like I said, false, that education is not the answer to a good life. Because you can be very educated and still be very wicked. Adam and Eve were highly educated when they blew it. They were highly educated when they fell. Man began with a mind that was perfect in its finite capacity for learning. God created them that way. And this emphasis on the heart also disproves the idea of the better a man's environment, the better the man will be. That's also false. That notion is shot down by the fact that people born and raised in the best environments do great wickedness. Again, Adam and Eve lived in the best environment anybody on earth has ever lived in, and yet they sinned. When God created the Garden of Eden, 
He had, he, there was nothing in the Garden of Eden to mar their relationship that would lead them astray. They had beautiful sights to see. They had beautiful sounds to hear. They had everything that they needed provided for them by God. They had it all. And yet they sinned. They fell in sin. You see, the problem in the world today isn't the physical heart. It's the spiritual heart. That's our main problem. Governments have tried all kinds of programs to solve the world's problems. And look around. Have they done it? No way. Their programs will never be successful. Why? They never focus on the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. Never forget that. The heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. Wicked tyrants, dictators, other government officials are that way because of their bad hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I've said it many times before. How many times have you heard a person, you know, somebody's committed a crime. Somebody that knows that person says, oh, that, that's not like them. Oh, they, they, they could never do something like that. Obviously not. That's what God means when he says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We think we know our hearts. We think, oh, I could never commit a crime like that. I could never do something so horrible. Oh, yes, we can. That's the deceitfulness of our hearts. We think we're much better than we are. But God's word makes it very clear. We are desperately wicked. You can count on a person who has a pure heart but to, to, to do certain things. You see, a person with a pure heart, they will grieve about the, those sinful ideas and thoughts. They'll grieve over their sins. This, kind of, uh, th- this is kind of like the second attitude that said, blessed are those who mourn. Those who, mourn, they, those who are pure in heart, they, they'll mourn over their evil thoughts. You know, you know, in your thoughts or maybe in your prayers, sometimes, you know, some evil thought will, will pop in there, maybe from, from the past or, you know, for some reason. And you just, do you grieve over it? Oh, Lord, forgive me. Please get that out of my mind. It, 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 I'm saddened by, by that thought that entered my mind. That person is pure in heart. They'll have a sensitive and tender conscience. And they'll mourn over their filthiness. That inward filthiness. Lord, please take this from me. Help me not to think thoughts like that. Help to to remove those those kind of things from my life. It will bother them. Their own sins really bother them. Now, some people get upset about the sins of other people. But we don't seem to be too bothered about our own. That's hypocrisy. That doesn't come from a pure heart. The purer a heart is, the more aware it becomes of and the more it grieves over sin. A pure heart is one that is aware of evil thoughts, nasty imaginations, and evil desires. A pure heart is one that grieves over pride and discontent. It grieves over unbelief and coldness of affection. And it weeps inside over unholiness. The pure, the pure in heart will pray to be clean, like David prayed in Psalm fifty-one, ten. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
Psalm 19.12, the psalmist said, Cleanse me from secret faults, Lord. Psalm 19.14, the psalmist said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. James said, Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Let there be tears. Notice, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. The person with a pure heart will oppose all evil. They will be against it. And sin will be sickening to the pure heart. Sin to the pure heart will be like a rotten odor, a putrid smell. And the pure in heart, they will oppose sin. They will be against sin in a heartbeat. The moment it rises up, they will be immediately opposed to it. Why? Because they're so sensitive to it. And sin so easily offends them. Even the slightest impurity will be noticed by the, the pure in heart. The pure in heart will the pure heart will not and cannot be comfortable wherever there is sin. The pure in heart cannot and will not allow itself to be where sin is. The pure in heart uh, people those people will not go to places where there is sin and where it's practiced. They'll be very sensitive to that. Somebody says, oh, let's go over here. Well, you know what? I, I, I can't go there. Instead of talking themselves into going, saying it'll be okay. Well, I won't do this and I won't do that. And once again, we have to know how to develop a pure heart. Just like all the rest of the Beatitudes that we've studied so far. We, you know, they're, they're, Jesus is saying these are things that we are to be. So how do we, how do we become those things? Pretty much the same way on this one as all the others. How do you develop a pure heart? Through reading the scriptures. God's word is the best and a guaranteed cleansing agent. It is 100% sure. It's 100% the best cleaning agent against sin. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room just before he was crucified, you are already clean, listen, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Those who the word of God dwells in richly, those who read and study the scriptures regularly, will know more about a pure heart than those who don't read regularly. And you know how many times I speak about reading and praying. This isn't legalism. Please understand, it's not legalism. We're not saved by praying. We're not saved by reading. We're not saved by going to church. But those are moral standards that the Christian must have incorporated into their lives in order to be a Christian, in order to live godly, Christ-like lives. It is a responsibility that we have in developing this relationship with God. It's just like in a marriage. There are certain things that we must do to develop a good marriage relationship. And we're developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're his bride. We're married to him. There are things that I got to do to make that marriage what it's supposed to be. I need to read. I need to pray. I need to go to church. 
And these are the things that my groom, the husband of the church, has said we need to do. It's not legalism. It is a moral standard we must understand we need to do to develop that relationship, that pure heart with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, uh, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.9, How can a man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 133, the psalmist said, Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. So reading the word again is important to developing a pure heart. Separation is also necessary for developing a pure heart. There are certain things, certain places, certain people, certain things that I, I have to separate myself from in order to develop a pure heart. And to guard my heart. Separation is a way to develop a pure heart. Now, not a lot of people like the idea of separation. But understand, separation and purity go together. There are certain people, certain places, certain practices, certain philosophies, certain thoughts and desires that we have to separate ourselves from if we expect to have a pure heart. Now, when we become those with a pure heart, and that's, you know, again, what, what we're living to do, those who have a pure heart, Jesus said, here's the reward for that, they shall see God. And you will not see God unless you are pure in heart. Because sin will keep you from the greatest privileges, the greatest honors, and the greatest blessings. Now, Satan tries to tell us that sin is the way of getting ahead in this world, but he doesn't tell you it's sin. All he does is encourage you to do certain things, go to certain places, and hang out with certain people. Yeah, they're the cool folks. This is the cool place to be. This is how you get ahead. This is how you make a name for yourself. This is how you you get ahead in the world. But he never tells you the the consequences. He never tells you what it's going to cost you or how far you're going to have to go, how deep you're going to have to get until you're in so deep you can't get out. That's why we have to separate ourselves from things that are unholy because we don't know how deep and how far down they'll take us. Sin makes things so blurry that our heart can't see God. He who does evil has not seen God, Scripture says. And that's talking about he who does evil persistently, who practices evil. They have not seen God. Now, this reward Jesus talks about that they shall see God. This reward is spiritual. It's not a physical sight. And this reward is different than those illustrations of seeing God, physically speaking. The, re- the reward here is spiritual in nature, and it includes more than just the person of God. 
and that's seen him personally. It also includes matters related to God. In other words, the pure in heart will see glory in his creation. When you look around and you see the flowers and the trees and the beauty of the creation of this world, you go, there you, I see God. I see God in that flower. I see God in that plant. That is his creative genius. In the birth of a child, I see the creative genius of God. That's how I see God. I'll see God in the things that that he's done. Again, the pure in heart will see the glory in creation. The pure in heart will see God in providence. You go through, through your life since God has saved you and you'll see what God has done in your life. Healed you when you were sick, got you out of a bind, provided money that you didn't have, you know, for the rent or whatever it might be. God provided it. You see God in that. That's his providence. Christian people, that is those pure in heart, they can see God in the events of history. How many times have you heard or you've even said, oh, I saw the Lord's hand in this. I saw the Lord's hand in that. Oh, the Lord did this. The Lord, I saw the Lord move here and I saw how he moved over there. We'll see God. That's part of seeing God. And the best time will be the pure in heart. We'll see God in heaven. That will be a spiritual experience, not a physical one. Not a physical one with the physical body that we have now. And this will be the best of all rewards promised in the Beatitudes. I am one day going to see God. And to see God is the greatest reward of all. To see God one day is the reason for all religion. That's the hope of all religion. But apart from Christ, you have no hope. Apart from Christ, you have no hope of ever seeing God. Today, people will stand and and wait for hours to get a peek at at a president or some dignitary or some high official. You know, they'll wait in line to see the movie stars line up on the red carpet or, or some celebrity somewhere just to get a glimpse of a nobody. But to see God, to see God is the greatest privilege and honor anybody can have. But only the pure in heart will see God. We need to make that, again, another goal in our life, another aim as a Christian. Verse 9, the next beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, this beatitude focuses on peacemaking. And because it here, it, it's because it's here, it tells us there's a great lacking of peace in this world, which is quite obvious. There is so much turmoil and animosity and hostility and, and hatred in the world today. We can see the lack of peacemakers in the world when you look at all the unrest and the division in the world today. And the strong emphasis is that Jesus that that Jesus puts on peacemaking shows us that the world around us is full of peace breakers. Lacking God's heavenly rest. 
And this lack of peace is the reason for the horrible disagreements and hostility that sin has brought into the world. Because where there's no strife, there's no need for peacemakers. But Paul says in Titus 3.3, the world is living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And sin does not encourage peace. Sin encourages strife. That's why we have such a great need for peacemakers today. Now, the meaning of the word peacemakers is to make peace. And the Greek word is found only in the New Testament. And to be a peacemaker entails more than just wanting peace or talking about peace. There has to be actions to get peace. It means doing something helpful to bring about peace wherever there's strife. It also means keeping the peace where there is no peace. The job of the peacemaker covers a lot of areas. It's not only concerned about peace between man and man, but more importantly, it's concerned about, it's concerned about peace between man and God. So it won't just strive to stop disagreement and strife and war and hostilities and families and neighbors, but it will also strive to get men right with God. To be a peacemaker, there needs to be at least two important requirements or qualifications. And those are holiness and sacrifice. If you're going to be a peacemaker, it will take holiness and sacrifice in your life. The peacemaker has to be pure in heart, And he has to be willing to pay a price. The two important qualifications are taught to us in the work of Jesus Christ. We saw that in Christ. Holiness and cost. In order for Jesus to bring peace with God for mankind, he had to be absolutely sinless. Holiness, pure in heart. And he had to pay an enormous price with his blood on the cross. Paul said Jesus paid this price when he said Jesus made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And because of these two important requirements, holiness and cost, this is why there aren't many peacemakers. They're not willing to pay the price. We have to be holy to be a peacemaker because sin causes strife and how can somebody who is causing strife be a be a peacemaker righteousness must always come before there's peace we saw that in our study in second chronicles chapter 23 last week in the last verse remember it said so all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was peaceful because athaliah who was a wicked queen was killed She had to be removed. The evil had to be removed and righteousness had to come forth before there could be peace and rest in the land. And that's what our country needs. The wickedness and the strife has to be removed before there will be peace and rest in the land. And that is not going to happen until Jesus Christ comes back. Any obstacle in your life 
like Athaliah was to the people of Judah, has to be completely removed and without mercy. Evil of any kind has to be put away. Paul said in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. This verse tells us about sin, and it said, knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. In other words, sin has to die in me if there's going to be peace and if there's going to be holiness. Sin has to die in me. And understand, sin cannot be neutralized. It cannot be restrained. It cannot be suppressed. It must be killed. Thus the cross. Thus being crucified with Christ for there to be peace. There has to be peace with God before you can experience the peace of God in your life. And we have to be willing to pay a price or we won't be peacemakers. If we're going to make peace with men, it will cost us heavenly, he- heavily, personally, in order to make and to keep peace. We'll have to sacrifice our pride, our reputation, our imaginary rights, if we're going to repair the wrong of the evildoer and change broken relationships. There's a lot of people who say they're peacemakers, but they're not even close to being one. Now, there's a lot of peace activists today. They march in the street. They carry peace signs. And, and, and you know, and, and, but they're not the same as a peacemaker. How many times do you see these protest marches, so-called peace marches, turn into rioting and destruction of property? Unbelievable. Being a peacemaker also is not appeasement. That is, that's not making some deal. You can postpone war by appeasing someone or making some kind of deal, but it's really not lasting. You see, it's sin that breaks the peace. That's why we have to deal with the sin if we're going to have peace. So we're not called to give up truth for peace because then it becomes peace at any price and we are not to compromise compromise the word of God in order to make peace. You can't have peace without righteousness. Psalm 85.10, the psalmist said, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. When there is plenty of righteousness, then things will go well. And some understand this verse of, in, in this Psalm uh, 85, um, uh, 10 uh, to, to be a man's righteousness and God's peace. They meet together. If we are consciousness of righteousness, we will have the comfort of peace. How many efforts, how many peace efforts have we seen in our lifetime through all the wars that were designed and meant to bring peace? But they failed. Why? They were all made without righteousness. So they really weren't true efforts at all. How about all the Nobel Peace Prize winners in our lifetime throughout all, all these years? They're not really peacemakers in the biblical definition. Without righteousness, it's just a worldly effort. Now, 
I grew up, and probably many of the older men here, uh, grew up in the, in the Vietnam War era. How many times were peace, peace efforts made, peace talks were made to stop that war? Protests, marches, talks, treaties, ceasefires. None of them worked. They were all man's attempt at stopping the war, but none of them worked. We have two beautiful examples of how it will work. Two biblical examples that show us what it takes to be a peacemaker. One was with Abraham. Remember when Abraham was dealing with Lot about a problem they had living together? He shows us an example, an excellent way of peacemaking work that Jesus was talking about here, that Jesus is talking about here in this beatitude. Remember, there was strife between Abraham and Lot's herdsmen. So Abraham went to Lot and he said, look, Lot, he said in Genesis 13, 8, let us not allow this conflict to come between us and our herdsmen. He said, after all, we are close relatives. So what was Abraham's solution to stop this conflict? This strife between the two? In Abraham's effort to make peace, he met the two requirements of purity and cost. He dealt factually with the problem of strife. He didn't downplay the problem, but he dealt with it truthfully. Abraham paid a big price. Because you see, when he suggested that that they part ways, he gave Lot first choice of the land. You see, Abraham sacrificed his privilege, and it was his privilege or right of first choice because he was the senior of the two. But he said, you know what, Lot? You pick the area that you want to go to. I'll take whatever's left over. That brought peace. Then we have the story of Abigail, Nabal's wife. Her husband, Nabal, his name means fool, and he was very foolish. <clears throat> but when David's men came to Nabal and said, asked for a little help, you know, financially or however he could, because, you know, David's men were protecting, protecting him from, from thieves and robbers, Nabal told David's men, you're crazy, get out of here, I ain't giving him nothing. David found out, and he said, wow, he was, he was upset. David said, I'm going to saddle up, boys. We're going to go take care of business. And uh, he was going to do away with Nabal and all of his guys. But then Abigail got wind of what happened. And when Nabal, like I said, wouldn't pay David and his men for, for his protection, David threatened to kill them all. But, but Abigail heard about David's threat, and she quickly jumped into action to bring peace. What did she do? She brought David and his men a generous gift of food and she humbly pleaded for him to have mercy on her foolish husband. And her involvement worked and she was was able to bring peace to that situation. In being a peacemaker, Abigail also fulfilled those two basic requirements of purity and peace. Her purity is seen in her humility and confessing Nabal's wrong. Her price is seen in the generous gift of food that she prepared and brought for David and his men. Both situations brought peace because they fill the requirements of purity and cost. How do we develop this beatitude? 
Well, again, it requires prayer, reading the word, and holiness. Sin destroys peace. And the person who has sin in their life doesn't have peace. The psalmist said in Psalm 48, 22, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And then along with this beatitude, the reward is, this, Jesus said, they will be called the children of God. Now, don't mistake this. They will be called the children of God for salvation. This is not salvation. Jesus said they will be called the children of God. He didn't say they will be made the children of God. We're only saved through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. There's nothing that we can do to earn or, or, or buy or work for salvation. It's through Christ's blood. This simply tells us they will be called the children of God. It simply tells us about the praise that will come to peacemakers. This reward brings great honor to the person who gets it. This reward unites us with God. It says you have character that's godly. So you see, this reward honors holiness. So may we pray to be pure in heart and to be peacemakers along with the other beatitudes that we've already studied. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, this beautiful sermon, God, that Jesus gave us here, Lord. And Lord, help us to desire, God, to be Father, what Christ has called us to be, Lord. And once again, these Beatitudes aren't some list of things that we're supposed to try to do. But they are characteristics, they are qualities that we are to become, that we are. And once again, these things will happen in us and take place in us when we allow Jesus to come in and to, to live in us and through us, God. These beatitudes happen when we allow his disposition to take over ours, Lord. And it's only through Christ that we can become Christ-like. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or you thought that you did know Jesus Christ. But again, it, it only comes through knowing Jesus personally, receiving him as Christ and Lord. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and you need peace in your life, you need purity in your life, You need to grieve over your sin, mourn over your sin, hate your sin. That only comes through knowing Christ. Most importantly, you need to be forgiven of your sin. And He's the only one who can forgive you. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.